Lord God, indeed, you are sovereign over all things. Particularly during trials when it's hard to understand or know your will, we are reminded that every trial, it is indeed a small little thread in the tapestry of your grace. And I pray for all of us that might be struggling now in different ways that we can always rely on your goodness, that you're using this for our good and for your glory. Help us through different trials be more dependent on you and be more reliant on you, Lord. Help us continue to seek to, to love you more through the things that are very difficult in life. Thank you for this opportunity now. We get to hear your word preached. Help prepare our hearts and minds to engage with your word and convict us and mold us into the image of your son. Thank you for this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12 will be the text for us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing for the one who desires life to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. John Paul Sartre wrote a play. He was a, he was a French philosopher, but he wrote this play called No Exit. And this play begins with three individuals stuck in a room together. They didn't know who each other were. They didn't know anything about them. They thought that this room was just a temporary holding place. And it wasn't until later on as the story progressed that the characters realized that this is not just a regular room, but in fact they are in the afterlife, particularly they are actually in hell. At first, they seemed to be fine with it. They thought that that hell was supposed to be a place of burning and suffering, and the fact that they were just with two other people felt relatively better than they thought. But as the story progressed, they got to know each other, and they started understanding and trying to learn why are we here together. And the story continues, and they eventually get annoyed of one another. Then they start hating one another, to the point where one of the characters said the most famous line in this play, which is, hell is other people. Some of you introverts think that way. Although the world may think that hell is other people in the context of maybe a public gathering or high school reunions or family holidays, that should not be the case when it comes to the people in the church. Yet sadly, that is how some of us view other church members. 
other believers. We are in the church and we get the sense that it's difficult to be with them. And instead of seeing the church as a place that holds the family of God and that the church is the closest thing that we have to heaven on earth, we view each other as hell is other people. The Bible speaks against disunity in the church. In a lot of ways, the the effectiveness of our evangelism can be measured by our love for one another. If there is a true Christ-like love for one another, there will be unity. John chapter 13, Jesus talks to his disciples and tells them that before he departs, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Jesus says that one of the most effective ways for you to win people to Christ is through them watching you and they see the love that you have for one another. First Peter was written to Christians that were scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. They were struggling because the Roman government was against their faith. And they're scattered throughout. And when they find other believers that they can uh, come together and fellowship with, Peter's encouraging them to, to not bicker, to not fight, but be united with one another. Throughout this whole preaching series, I'm try- I was trying to answer the question, why does San Francisco need San Francisco Bible Church? And the answer is that we are here, and why the city needs this church is because this city needs the gospel. And throughout the weeks, I tried to answer that in different ways. That how do we tell people about Jesus Christ? Whether it is telling of the hope that we have, this future glory that we have in heaven, we go and tell other people that this world is not all that there is, but that we have hope in heaven if we trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Another way that we talk about how to win people to Christ is how we live our lives. And the way that we uh, live holy lives, distinct from the world, that it will draw people to the Lord, that we show them that this is who our God is. That means we abstain from certain sins so that we can show the world just a little bit of who our Savior is. In chapter 2, we talk about how as sojourners and aliens, we need to keep it excellent behavior. And part of that means that we need to submit to the government, that we need to submit to the government, even though they may be unfair and they may treat us unkindly, and they may treat us in a way that is harmful, but we are still called to submit to them. Then we moved on to talk about how even servants need to submit to their masters and how we need to submit to our earthly masters. And that's in the context of work. And the way that we submit to them, we show them just how our Savior is like. Because at the end of chapter 2, we see the example in Jesus Christ and how he was willing to submit to earthly authorities because he ultimately submitted to a heavenly one. That he did not fight back, even though he was reviled, that every moment of suffering, every mistreatment that he went through. He kept entrusting himself to the Lord who judges righteously. Then last week we talked about in the context of the home, that despite the fact that a person may be married to an unbelieving spouse, that the wife needs to submit to her husband 
because she trusts the Lord, and that for husbands to submit to the needs of their unbelieving wife. It is through these different ways of obedience to the Lord that will draw unbelievers to the faith. And particularly here at the end of families, that they could win them without a word. That you don't need to nag someone into the kingdom of God, but through your faithful living and obedience to the Lord, that people will want to know Jesus Christ. So here, this, this morning, we're talking about the context of the church. That when non-believers, if there were some non-believers that were to visit us and to do an investigation on us, that when they observe the life of SFBC, that they can walk away and conclude thinking, this church is a church that is indeed filled with love. That this church is a church that has unity, that truly tries to live out the scriptures in the lives of one another. So if we want to be a faithful witness to the world, we need to have a Christ-like love for one another. One way that we can win people to Christ is how they look at us in the church here and they see that Christ-like love for one another. So Peter gives us a command for unity and the means for unity in hopes that we can win the people outside of the church to Christ. As sojourners, we want to be a faithful witness to the world. In order to do that, we need to have a Christ-like unity with one another. So the first, Peter gives us the command for unity. The command for unity. Look at verse 8. It says here, it begins by, to sum up, which can be very misleading. Some of your translations, finally, because there's at least two more chapters after this. So Peter's not saying that this is the, be- the conclusion to the end of his epistle, but rather this is the end of this section about how we need to obey God and submit to him, and in submitting to him, that there are blessings that comes with it. Peter's speaking how believers need to learn how to treat other people. And in this context, again, is how believers are treating, uh, how believers are supposed to interact with those around them. But particularly here, he's speaking to believers. Why do I say that? Because it says here to sum up all of you. Who is the all of you? He's speaking to all the believers in, that's reading this book, all the Christians that are scattered in Asia Minor. And at that time, the believers would not only just read it, but they'll try to copy it word for word so that they could hand it to other Christians. And those Christians would copy it word for word as well. And on and on, it gets passed down through the years and the generation to the point where now, in 2023, we still have this letter from Peter. So this isn't just speaking to the Christians then or even now, but Christians in, from all time and in all places. He commands them to be harmonious. This is just another way of saying that we need to have the same mind. The Christians should have the same mind with one another. And what that means is that it's that we have the same mind around truth. It's not to say that all Christians have the same preferences or the same interests. Rather, on the things that matter most, all Christians should be united in these things. We should be harmonious when it comes to things of the truth. People oftentimes would leave the church or cause, the, or cause division in the church over very petty fights or some sort of church politic. And it's true that does happen in the church, but the church should always strive to do better. Again, it isn't to say that you guys can't have preferences or your own interests, but that the thing that unites all of us, the thing that unites every single Christian here is the truth. Why is there disharmony? And oftentimes it is because 
of our own selfish preferences. John chapter 17, verse 22, the high priestly prayer, this is what I read in the opening prayer. It says that the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus is telling his disciples that we need to have the same type of unity that the Trinity has in one another. The unity that we have, this love that we have, should reflect the Trinity. The intra-Trinity love that was there before the foundation of the world must be mirrored in the, in the life of the church. <clears throat> and why is that? It's so that the world will know the love of God. The world will look at us and they can determine whether or not we truly believe in the scriptures. <clears throat> God wants us to be united in truth. True unity is not ignoring the truth, but rather we're called to expose error. Excuse me. Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> Romans chapter 16, verse 17 reads. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrance, contrary to the teaching which you've learned, and turn away from them. We don't, we don't want to divide in the church, but our unity is not with error either. Our unity must be with truth. To avoid divisions in, in the church, we must divide away from those that hold to things that are erroneous. People often cause division over preferences. And if there is ever a division over the church, it's oftentimes it's because of one person elevating one thing over another. Sometimes people divide over things like evangelism methods. They look at the church and they think this is not how you will do evangelism it's only this particular method so instead of praising the lord that there are people in the church that are sharing the gospel they get upset that it's not this one particular way it has to be open air preaching or it has to be uh, the way of the master method but that is the way that the world thinks that they focus on some sort of preference rather than being thankful to the Lord for the things that are going on. Sometimes there are disputes over musical styles, people that get upset because they're upset of the, that the drum sets here or that there are certain way songs that sound very contemporary. But instead of thinking about what are these words that they're singing that can lift my heart and my mind to think about the Lord, people get worked up over the style some people get upset over different discipleship methods. They think, oh, it has to be discipleship. is only a certain way. And if it isn't, if the people are meeting throughout the week at a certain amount of times, then they are not doing discipleship right. Instead of praising the Lord, the fact that there are people that are willing to pour into one another, we find ourselves trying to impose our preferences in every area of the church. Petty divisions are a terrible testimony for the Lord. And, these, and, and the people... These people that choose a cost ascension, they're not content with just voicing their opinion. What they want is to have other people join them to cause disunity and disharmony in the church. 
that was to think of ourselves, are we this way? Do we find ourselves constantly being critical of things for church <coughs> as, opposed, as opposed to being thankful to the Lord that there's so much ministry going on in the church? And Peter here lists these different ways which we can keep the unity. Notice here it says sympathetic. This word is to feel what others feel. Whereas being harmonious is more in the mind in terms of having the right doctrine. Sympathy here is speaking of feelings. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's this genuine concern for one another in the church. And we need to have the same feeling for one another. So that when, when, when non-believers come in and when they see, when they see that when one person in the church is hurting, that it affects the entire church. It moves them because we are moved by other people's pains. This is what First Corinthians talks about when it has like, when there's one body and when one member's hurt, the entire body hurts. That we come alongside one another when there is pain. Next one, he says here, is brotherly. This is loving one another. This is this sacrificial love that we have for one another. John <coughs> chapter 13, verse 34 tells us that we need to have this same love for each other the way that Christ has loved us. And Jesus is concerned with the way people think about it. And it's not in a fear of man kind of way, but that in the way that we show brotherly love to each other, that people are going to want to be part of it, but they can't have it without Christ. And if we aren't living Christ-likeness before the world, then people won't have anything to do with Christianity altogether. And Christians, we have to understand, we have to see each other as being part of the family of God. And I like this word brotherly because that is how we should view one another. Not that we are siblings like we bicker with each other, but that, they're, that no matter what happens, we're always going to be together. And notice the next one, kind-hearted. This is this desire to help other people. This is have a tender heart. This means to have a, a gut feeling for someone. This word is used to describe Jesus when he saw the multitude, the crowd of people that were, they had a gut feeling too. They were hungry, and, and, and Jesus was moved from the inside, and he became compassionate towards them, so he fed the multitude. That's the same word that's used here. And when you look at the people in the church, when you see the needs of the people in the church, when you meet those needs, that shows that you are kind-hearted. Now, I know this church is really good when it comes to meeting the needs of the church. However, I do know that there are some people in the church who do have needs. They have a genuine need, and instead of going to the church and asking for help, in their own pride, they think to themselves, well, I can handle this myself. Not realizing that the church family, it's, 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 it's a means by which a God could show his kindness towards you. And the fact that there are people that are willing to come and care for you, to bring food for you, to minister to you, this is a way in which God is using the church to be a blessing to you. So when you deprive the opportunity, not really for the people to serve you, really depriving the opportunity for the Lord to minister to you. And if that's the case, and oftentimes it is because of pride that we don't want other people to know what we're going through, that shows just our own sinfulness, that we want to be disconnected from the church. But I know our church generally, when those needs are known, you got to do a great job in meeting those needs. When there's someone that's going through a health issue or when there's a new baby in the family and there's an email chain that comes out, you guys fill those up within minutes. 
You guys do a great job in caring for those that are in need because you guys are kind-hearted. And I hope that continues on in this church. Notice at the very end that Peter ends with humble in spirit. And this is the way that you think about yourself, the way you perceive yourself. It shouldn't be of, you shouldn't think of yourself in, in some sort of lofty position or to think of yourself that you deserve to be treated better. But this is an attitude that you have in terms of lowering yourself and having a right view of yourself. Do you view yourself greater than other people or do you have a right assessment of who you are? A person that's humble will always think of others as more important than themselves. In fact, your secret for all of you, if you want to be in a good relationship, whether it's in the home or in church or wherever it may be, if you want to have a good relationship with other people, the most important thing that you need to know is to think of, of others as more important than you. The world wants to see Christ. And when they look at the church, they should see hundreds of us that are willing to lay down our own preferences for the other person, that we're willing to give up our life for one another. The unity of the church is a powerful witnessing tool to outsiders because we as Christians, we are a forever family. We're going to be together forever, so we might as well get used to it. We might as well start treating us each other well. Believers should want unity because that is the love that God has for us. In 1 John, it tells us that how can we claim to love God if we can't even love the brothers that we see? How do we claim that we, to love God that we can't see if we can't even love the brothers and sisters that we're able to see? And as Christians, when we're harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, the world no, takes notice of that, and that will draw them to the faith. The world wants this. They want to have what we have in Christ, but they cannot have it without Christ. And when they enter in the church to visit, and again, someone might be here today, your, your friend brought you here, or your family member brought you here. If you stick around long enough, I hope that you'll see that this church is filled with Christ-like love for one another. And I hope that as believers here, that we continue to strive for that that we want to be harmonious in doctrine, that we're sympathetic with one another's needs, that we're brotherly in terms of the way that we are as a family, that we're kind-hearted in the way that we treat each other, and that we do all of these things with humility in spirit. Not only does Peter commands for you, have a command for unity, but he also gives us the means for unity. He provides us in the text the means of unity. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you recall for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This phrase, do not return for evil for evil, it's exactly that. We think of return as in like returning something that we bought in a store. And that's the same idea, that you receive something and you want to return, you want to give it back. And it's saying that don't return evil for evil. This word evil is just any type of wicked action or any anything with an evil disposition. This is why Romans chapter 12 tells do not, uh, vengeance belongs to the Lord. We should not return evil for evil, but return evil for good. Do not fight back. Do not retaliate. Returning evil for evil, it's like trying to clean a dirty clothes with more dirt. It will just make things worse. Notice the next phrase is insult for insult. This is the same word for reviling here. This means to mock or to curse or to attack someone verbally. This is the most common way in which we fight back against one another. 
It's when someone says something that's unkind with their words, and the result is that we say something back, that we come up with some sort of clever comeback. That's what this word here means, for insult for insult. This is a form of revenge. And if you've ever thought about why do we want revenge? Why is revenge such a powerful emotion? And the reason is, I think, is because we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God so we know that there is right and wrong. And when something bad happens to us, we get upset and we want justice to be done. And when we're hurt, we want to hurt other people back. And again, the problem is not that you're hurt or that should justice ever be done. It's more like, who should carry out this justice? Who is in the right position to carry out that justice? Because sometimes the government will fail or those that, does, that should put things right, don't, you know, they, they won't be able to do so. But it is our natural tendency in those moments we want to take matters into our own hands. But that is not, that should not describe us as believers. You may think someone deserves to be insulted for insulting you, but you do not have any right to do so. Even that person deserves it. It doesn't make it right for us to say anything or to return any insult for insult. Again, we're not saying that the person hurt you isn't real or that it doesn't matter. Peter is just saying that it is not your job to take matters into your own hand. It is not your job to make it right. And often people, uh, they will try to do, when they do, when they try to do these things, they do it because they feel injustice has happened. And again, when people do revenge, is often either more than it needs to be or less than. It's never exactly where it needs to be. And it's in those moments you need to continue to entrust yourself to the Lord, which is what Peter said in First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-two or twenty-three. It said, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Two wrong does not make a right. Even though it may feel right, it doesn't make a right. Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 20, verses 22, he writes this, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. It's natural for us to want to take revenge, but it's supernatural for us to not to do so. It requires faith and trust in the Lord that no matter how bad I'm being treated, no matter how insulting that word is, that I trust that the Lord will deal with it one day. God knows, and that should give us peace. We should want to trust in the Lord. And the fact that there are times when we do revenge that shows to the watching world that we don't really trust God, that we need this, this moment, that we need to, uh, to have justice right at this very moment. And Peter, again, he's speaking to the relationship between believers and other believers. If we can't take revenge against them, and I mean, even in the context of Scripture, it tells us that even for our enemies, that those that are enemies, people that want to hurt us, those people that we need to forgive and pray for them, if, if even our enemies were supposed to be praying for and bless them, how much more are we supposed to treat the family of God? How much better should we treat those that are, we call brothers and sisters in the faith? If you find yourself constantly attacking other Christians, if you find yourself constantly insulting other Christians, then there is a possibility that you are not a believer. 
Because Jesus tells us that out of the outflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell a lot about someone by the things that they say. And if they spend, if you're one of those people that like to spend your time insulting and hurting other people with your words, then you need to think about whether or not you truly are a believer. Because that is not becoming of a Christian. Ephesians tells that our speech should not be with coarse jesting and it should be building up the body of Christ. And when you insult other people with your words, when you think that this is just fun to do, to put down other people, you're essentially living unchristlike. When people say something bad to you, instead of thinking, what is the next, uh, next witty thing that I can say, you should think to yourself, what would be most honoring to the Lord? Because the most honoring thing to the Lord is not to be silent. When someone says something mean to you, it's not that silence is the response. Look at the next part of the verse. It said, but giving a blessing instead. So when someone does evil to you or, or says something mean to you or insulting to you, what you need to do is actually give a blessing in return. When someone hurts you, you need to return with a blessing. This is to speak well of them. It's to, treat, it's to say something nice about them even though they are saying rude things to you. You are called to do this. The opposite of reviling is not silence, but return with a blessing. You don't just avoid them, but you pray for them. You want something good to happen to them. It's wishing them well. This is how, in Romans chapter 12, about returning evil with good. This is one of the things that you would do to return good, is that you will say something nice to them. You want to say something true, and you just want to see what's best for them. Just imagine in the context of the church, if you are at church and you're doing your best to serve in a particular ministry and someone that is not part of the ministry comes up and starts criticizing you and the ministry you're part of, it's easy to maybe bite your tongue and not say anything back. But the scripture tells us to return someone, return those things with a blessing. So what does that look like when someone criticizes your ministry? It means that you thank them. You thank them that they're at least thinking about these things. And perhaps some of the things that they're saying is legitimate that can help you improve on your ministry. You should thank them for their concern because they do have some level of care for the church. And they may critique you and your ministry, but thank them for it. Or when you're at home and you're with your spouse, your spouse may be, be a very critical of the way that you do things around the house. And instead of being upset at them, and turn a, cold, uh, blind eye, or turn a cold shoulder to them, you want to say something true in return. You should thank your spouse for observing and seeing something that you're missing in the home so you can improve your livelihood. The key is to think of something that is good for the listener. You need to be able to quickly forgive those that hurt you. Over time, you'll develop a reputation of just of not just taking revenge, but return people with, return those sayings with a blessing. It's hard to keep fighting against someone who treats you so nicely. And this is what Jesus says in First Peter. It says, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Peter's saying that, that you want to do all of these things because of the great salvation that you have. This is incentive for returning good for evil. Piercing that you have received such a great blessing from the Lord, 
you have no other choice but to return things with a blessing. If you bless others, you'll one day receive this inherit this eternal blessing from the Lord. You inherit blessing from God. This is blessing that is for you that will come later on in, in, in your existence. And when we hurt, we want to get back at the person right at, right at the very moment. And that may give some sort of short-term satisfaction. And, and Peter's saying, have an eternal mindset about even the momentary struggles you have with other people. And he goes on by using an illustration from Scripture. Notice in verse 10, he said, For the one who desires to love and seek good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter here quotes from Scripture. He's trying to strengthen his argument by using the Word of God. And Peter knows that the things he's writing is divinely inspired. But in case there are people that don't trust Peter, he points them back to God's Word. Here, this psalm here, Psalm 34, this is a, a psalm of David when he's suffering, not because of the fact that he did anything wrong. In fact, he was suffering for doing something right. This was not that he was, it wasn't like he's sitting against Bathsheba's writing about this. In the context of Psalm 34, he was obedient to the Lord. He was chosen by God, and, and he was able to kill Goliath and, 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 and represent God before all the Gentile nations, and Saul was jealous of him. He was jealous of his notoriety. He was jealous of David's success, and he wanted to kill David. And you remember in 1 Samuel, David actually had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he chose not to. Even the fact that he cut off a little bit part of his robe made him feel guilty about it. And he confessed, and Saul looked at David and said, you are truly more righteous than I. David truly is the chosen one. And even David understood that it is only God that's going to remove Saul, and that he must never lay a finger to God's anointed. It is in that context that he writes Psalm 34. This is a psalm that Peter is quoting. He said, For the one who desires life to love and seek good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is good days. It's not about in terms of how long you live, but the quality of life. A believer is blessed when they're obedient to the, to the word of God. This is why believers need to keep striving for unity because the church is a place when there's filled with lovely people who love the Lord and love one another to become an encouragement and blessing to those around them. But if there is disunity, the church can be a place of just, just soul-sucking, soul-draining. Believers can have a good day despite things going horribly wrong when they're obedient to the Lord, when they choose not to return evil for evil. When people who are not saved, when they're watching us, even they, and some of them might be here, they see how Christians seek to love one another, they, how they, they are filled with grace despite their one another's shortcomings. It makes them wonder, wow, these people truly love God. And it's evident in the way that they love one another. It makes outsiders want to know this Jesus Christ. Why would they do why would these Christians that are gathering together on such a weekly basis, why would they treat each other this way? Despite that the fact that there's conflict with one another, why are they so kind to each other? The church should be a place that's filled with love, grace, and forgiveness because we know how much grace, love, and forgiveness is shown to us. It says here, must keep his tongue from evil and lips from speaking deceit. 
A person needs to keep themselves or stop themselves from doing any type of evil. Again, this is, this is the same idea of not turning to evil. This word deceit here is lying. We must keep our tongues from speaking things that are not true. And what does deceit look like in conflict? Think about every conflict that you have with someone. Oftentimes, those heated fellowships or those heated disputes, they're, they're often exagger- it's often from like exaggeration or miscommunication or misinformation or just plain, plainly not telling the truth. Conflict always escalates when people exaggerate, when they give false information or just outright lying to one another. And we must be committed to speak the truth even when the people are hurting us. Almost all conflict begins with something that someone has said. And that's why in James chapter 3, it specifies that if we can control our tongue, that we'll be perfect. Which means in theory, you can have a perfect relationship if both of you control your tongue perfectly. But we want this. We, don't we, we want this desire to, to use our words to, to not hurt or break or tear other people down, but use our words to build others up. There is no place for impure speech in the life of the Christian. You will not be blessed unless you know how to control your tongue. Look at verse 11. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is a series of different command, and if you violate these, you will have conflict with one another. It says he must turn away from evil. It's just basically stop doing bad things to one another. It's swerving away. So when you see evil right before you, you swerve to another lane. A few years ago, my wife and I, and our oldest at the time, just we, had only, we only had one at the time, we were driving on the 280. It was a Monday afternoon. It was after lunchtime. There weren't that many cars on the road. And we were driving home. I saw this one little pigeon on the road. And I thought to myself, like how most of us thought that, Oh, we don't need to worry about it. When we get close to it, it will just fly away. Well, it did not do that. I ran that pigeon over, and there were feathers all over the place. And you need to view your sin not like the way I view that pigeon. Like, when you see your sin, you don't run straight towards it, but you swerve away. You turn. You try to get as far as, uh, away as you can as possible. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that there's no temptation that is that is unique to us, and that in every temptation, there is always an opportunity for us to escape. That's swerving away from evil. And that's the way that we can get a good life or a peaceful life, if we swerve away from evil. Notice this here, do good. This is pursuing the things that are good. You, you put on Christ-likeness and you do good works. This is instead of seeing an opportunity to, to harm the other person, you're looking for the opportunity to do good to them the person that hurt you, the person in the church that might be mean to you at some point in the past, instead of thinking of opportunity to get back at them, you think, when is there an opportunity for me to show them Christ-like love? When is there an opportunity that I can be a blessing to them? That you don't hold on to any grudges or wait for them to get hurt and to go and like, hurt them some more, but you look for those opportunities so you can be a blessing to them. Notice it said, he must, make, he must seek and Seek peace and pursue it. This is something that takes work. God is not pleased or honored when Christians have conflict with one another. Christians are called to be peacemakers. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. This word pursue here, it's this idea of hunting. 
It's you're locking on to target and you're trying to find it. You're trying to hit, hit that aim you, or if, uh, aim carefully and then fire at that target. It's hunting for something. And the church must be a peaceful place because believers are always pursuing peace. Those who get along with others must pursue peace. Make a persistent effort to be a peacemaker within the church. I know there are times when people hurt you and you think you just kind of punted in the Romans 12, be at peace, if possible, be at peace with all men, and you don't even try at all. This word pursue here means that you actually have to try. It's not just this person hurt me once with some phrase or hurt me once in my life and therefore that's it. Peace to me means I don't do anything to them. No, peace means that you have to pursue it. This is something that you actively need to strive to do. Now, we know not everyone is going to want it, but you have to understand before the Lord, you yourself have to strive for peace. Romans chapter 12, 14, Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says this. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up for one another. Second Corinthians you can write this, all, like, these, these lists of verses down if you like. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22. It says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And we're called to be peacemakers because that is what God is like to us. Before we were even known as sons and daughters of the Most High, we were enemies of God. But yet God, in his grace, demonstrated his love towards us by reconciling us to him. We were at one point at war with God, but he was the one that made peace with us. He pursued us and made peace with us, and therefore we must pursue other people for peace. If you, you know that you don't have peace with people in the church when you enter into the building and you're just hoping and wishing and praying that you don't have to interact with that person. Or if you're in some sort of small group with them, that you wish that you can be paired off with someone else. You know, sometimes we have like small groups during the retreat or men's conference or women's conference, and you think to yourself, please, Lord, not with that other person. Or when you're in some sort of public gathering that you, you, you'll talk to everyone, but make sure that you allocate zero time for the person that offended you. You're constantly striving to flee from the person because you know you haven't made peace with that person. And if that is you today, you must pursue peace. You must be willing to hunt down peace, and you won't stop until you get it. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. For the fa but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And God sees you. The greatest motivator of why you want to pursue peace is because we know that our God is watching. And it's the right motive. It's the right incentive that God knows what you're going through. And God delights in the obedience of his children. There is an accountability for us to live for the Lord because he sees us. And we understand sometimes we alter our behavior 
to look better when, we, when there's someone that we respect that walks through the door. That's why sometimes when you go into children's, you walk in, all the kids kind of stand up and they're nervous because they know that they're, they did something wrong and they don't want to be caught. Some of us are like that at work, that we work and we're kind of sloppy, but when our boss walks by, we, we, we straighten up because we realize, okay, the boss is here. But we need to always have that mentality when it comes to God. God is always watching us. And it's not to make us be fearful, but just know that since God is watching us, we want to be pleasing to him because he's always with us and he, he loves us and therefore we want to be faithful to him. However, I don't think Peter's just saying that saying all this to make us feel dread that God is watching us, but at the same time for the other end, people who have been hurt, that God is watching as well, that he knows our sorrows, that God's children are a special concern for God. God is watching everything, and he hears when we're praying to him. This is why he says, and his ears attend to, the, to their prayers. Even though it seems like the situation is unfair or undeserved, God sees and he listens to our prayers. He is saying to think about God in the present moment. You have to trust that God is going to figure this out somehow. Whether the person that sinned against you, whether that sin is dealt with on the cross, or that this person truly is not a believer, and God will deal with him one day in in eternity. But our responsibility before the Lord, who watches us, is that we want to pursue peace. Revenge is never equal, it never equals out in terms of human terms. And that's okay because we find our peace in God. God knows how much pain that we are in. So cry out to God and the Lord is with you. But notice this caution at the very end here. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this should, is a test, this testifies that God is indeed omniscient and his eyes is on both the good and the evil. In the church, there are people that, are, that may strive to do evil things, and God is watching you as well, just as much as he's watching those that you're hurting. And Peter's encouraging the believers that as they obey this command of unity, that they're harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, that the watching world will see this Christian group, this church here, as they see that love that we have for one another, and it will draw them to Christ. The gospel is foolishness to the world, but love is not. How you and I show love to one another will allow them to see just a little bit more about who our triune God is like. It's the gospel made real before them. And if we want to win the world to Christ, you don't need to necessarily go out every Sunday or every day of the week to win people to Christ. Sometimes the best tool for evangelism is to, is to love those that are in the church so that the watching world, when they look at us, they want to be a part of it. But more than just being a part of this community here, they want to know the God that we worship. And you can't be an effective evangelist and a faithful Christian if you're not an obedient child of God. And the thing that Peter commands us and the believers then at the time is that we need to have unity with one another if we want to win those that are watching to Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word and reminding us of the importance of unity in the church body. We know that it can be very tempting for us to hold on to grudges, to hold on to bitterness, but Lord, you command us to put those things away, to lay aside our old selves, to, to cast away those sins and to 
trust in you, knowing that you will judge righteously. And I pray for the people here in the church that may have tensions and, and conflict with one another, that you remind them to pursue peace, to constantly seek it because you are the God that is ultimately the greatest peacemaker. And we want to model you, Lord, um, for the unity of the body, but also to the testament to a watching world. The world seeks to have the love that we have, and they cannot have it without you. And may we be able to show that you are the power to restore relationships in the church because of the power that you have to rescue us from the domain of darkness into your kingdom, Lord. Lord, give us opportunity this week, if it's your will, to reconcile and restore those relationships. Give us the courage and the boldness to be faithful and to live accordance to your word. Thank you for this time to have. In your son's name I pray, amen.